Well, it's um, great to be with you here this morning. Welcome. Uh, my name is Rodney Anderson. I'm one of the staff pastors here at Grace Community Church. I um, am co-leader of a group called Commissioned Fellowship Group. We meet second hour in this room, in fact, uh, and I co-lead that with Brad Clausen. And uh, if you know Brad Clausen, or I've heard him teach, say in Men of the Word or elsewhere, uh, come for him and, uh, and then stay if I'm preaching that week as well. But uh, we would, of course, love to have you at Commissioned uh, anytime. Uh, in addition to that, I am the missions pastor at Grace Church, and so we have our missions uh, program, which is part of Grace Community Church, called Grace Ministries International. And so one of uh, the things that I do is go and encourage our missionaries, we help shepherd our missionaries, um, but then also encourage our church body to be praying for and encouraging our missionaries. So we have events such as Grace Global once a quarter on Sunday afternoons that I would encourage you to go to as well. But um, our missionary families, we have about 92, we have 92 missionary families right now around the world serving in different countries. And we have a, a small staff that helps care for them administratively and shepherding, but we need the whole church to care for 92 families. That's not done by a small group. So I want to encourage you to come alongside and encourage those families when you can. So that's a little commercial before I get going here. Um, but it's good, uh, good to have you here this morning. Hopefully you got some breakfast and some coffee and everything out on the patio. And, uh, and in a minute, we'll just uh, jump in and cover this topic um, that we have for today, the cult of victimhood. But before we do that, let me open in prayer for us as we look at God's Word. Father, we thank you for your grace this day, a Sunday morning, where we can come together as fellow believers as those who want to honor you with our lives, as those who want to uh, obey and submit to the rule of Christ in all that we do. Father, we pray that you're honored in our worship today. Ultimately, today, every Sunday, it's not about us and what did we get out of church today, but it's about you and how did we bring you glory today? How did we praise you today with our submission to your word with the praise of our lips, with our giving, all these ways, Lord, we want you to receive the glory. And so we pray as we look at this topic today about victimhood, God, that Christ would receive the glory in it. Lord, if that does not happen, we have wasted our time. And Lord, as we receive instruction from your word, may we go out faithful to obey your word, faithful to live in ways that glorify Christ. And may you be praised in his name. Amen. Well, as I said, today I'll be speaking on the cult of victimhood. And as you undoubtedly have observed, uh, victimhood and feeling like a victim is uh, prevalent everywhere in our society today. It is something that you cannot miss if you read the news or consume any media whatsoever that victimhood is everywhere. In fact, this week there was an interesting exchange that you may have seen on uh, the internet, on YouTube or something, that uh, pointed to just another example of victimhood. And this was a Senate hearing this week 
um, that you may have seen where a senator, Josh Hawley, was asking questions of a UC Berkeley professor, uh, Kiara Bridges, about the impact of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. So in this uh, Senate hearing, it was talking about uh, the issue, is this a woman's right issue, and, and what, uh, what are the impacts of this decision? And in this, this UC Berkeley professor, Bridges, she said that she referred to people with the capacity for pregnancy, to which Senator Hawley replied, you, you refer to people with the capacity of pregnancy, would, would that be women? And Bridges replied, well, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. And she further stated that the senator's failure to recognize this issue, that it's not just women who get pregnant, but also these other categories that she mentioned, uh, by him not recognizing them, he was being transphobic. And so when the senator refused to agree with her that anyone besides women could have children, She said, the senator is opening up trans people to violence by his failure to recognize them, and that one in five transgender people attempt suicide, and the senator's questions were dangerously fueling this violence against trans people. If you haven't seen the video, it's about a minute and a half, two minutes long. It's it's a fascinating exchange. Here are two people very much know their positions asking questions of one another, but it wasn't questions. They were very much stating their sides of the opinion. And what I found fascinating, among many things about that exchange, was this professor from Berkeley, she took it from anyone even questioning the truth of it, makes transgender people a victim. And immediately was throwing this group of people into victim status did not want to say that those who choose to become transgender or those who encourage it had any role or responsibility in the depression or the attempted suicides of transgender people. It was all the fault only of those who denied that transgender people exist or that can have children. So just another fascinating display how quickly the world in so many ways wants to claim victimhood. We're a victim. Everyone wants to say they're a victim. And what I hope to show you today is, one, we'll talk about the lie of victimhood, what it is, how prevalent it is, define it, and then we'll look at the truth of Scripture. What does Scripture say about being a victim? What does Scripture say about this mindset? And then finally, third, our response to it. If these things are true, what then should be our response to this. But before we get into this, I want to refer you to a passage of Scripture. You could turn there in your Bibles, and that's Colossians 2.8. So I want to first look at this passage with you to kind of help you understand why are we even covering this cult of victimhood? Why are we even looking at this right now? And the book of Colossians, as you may know, is where Paul is exalting the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, showing how Christ is over all things and sufficient for all things. And he does that in in showing Christ is sufficient to defeat false teaching and to direct our everyday conduct. And in this, in defending against false teaching, a key verse 
in Colossians is chapter 2, verse 8. And he gives a strong warning here. Colossians 2.8 reads this. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So in this we see he starts out this verse, see to it, he says. See to it, that's an imperative. and Literally what that means is watch out. Watch out, be on guard, take heed against this. You need to be careful. And many times this verb is used in the New Testament saying, watch out, be on guard. In Matthew 24, 4, Christ says, see to it that no one misleads you. We must be on guard that we are not misled. And what does he warn against? He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. And to be taken captive literally means to be taken off as plunder. Uh, The word kidnapped would even be a good synonym for that. So he's saying, watch out. Be on guard that you're not kidnapped. Now, this isn't a public service announcement about kidnapping, of course. What type of being taken off, being kidnapped is he talking about? He's talking about in your mind and in your thinking. Because he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. What Paul understands and what he's communicating to the Colossian believers is the battleground is in your mind. This is where we need to be so careful as believers in that our thinking can get captured by the wrong thinking of the world. We need to heed this warning very carefully. See to it that we are not carried away in our thinking through philosophy and empty deception. We can be led astray in how we think. Now these words, philosophy and empty deception, philosophy is a very general term in Greek. It's, it's any system of thought. Any type of thinking can lead us astray, can take us captive. He pairs that with empty deception. Empty deception is something that's hollow or worthless, some kind of trickery. So he says there is, and he, he combines those two terms. So there is uh, one article for both terms, which in the Greek combines them for one meaning. What he's saying is there are systems of thought, there's ways of thinking that are empty and hollow and will just deceive you. And you need to watch out for those. You can be taken captive by this empty thinking, by this worthless, the worthless ideas of the world. And he further describes this empty worldly philosophies by three different descriptions. One, according to the traditions of men. What he's saying is this is an idea that men have. This isn't from God. This is men's ideas. And we need to be on our guard against these thoughts, these ideas that only come from men and are separate from the Word of God and God's truth. He secondly describes it as according to the elementary principles of the world. These are things that are literally meaning the fundamental components of the world. You know, perhaps it had to do with the belief in astrology or spirit beings. But like he's just talking about simplistic thinking, simple, fundamental things which are not according to God. And finally, rather than according to Christ. And here's the heart of the problem of this type of thinking. It's not according to the truth found in Christ. 
It's not consistent with the gospel. There is much thinking in the world, whether it was back in the time when the book of Colossians was written, or it's in our day today, where there is a lot of empty thinking that is very much opposed to biblical truth, very much contrary to the gospel of Christ. And we need to be on guard against that. This was a command given to the Colossian church and very much a command given to us too, and one that we need to listen to carefully. We need to be on guard against wrong thinking. And we need, if we fail to do this, it will shape the way we make value judgments. It can affect the way we view others and the way we view ourselves if we listen to the world's philosophy rather than Christ. So we need to be so careful in how we think. And the empty lies of the world must be rejected. Here's the trick, of course, is they sound reasonable. It's not that Satan comes to us with lies that are very obvious. There's a, often a, an element of truth in them. But it's paired with thinking and leads us in a direction that's away from Christ. And so we must be careful about any worldly philosophy and compare it with the truth of Scripture. And that's what I want to do today. So we want to heed the warning in this verse to be careful, to be watchful, to guard our thinking. And the area that I want to address today, the title of our sermon, The Cult of Victimhood, is this thought that you may be told all the time by the world, and it's this, you are a victim. You are a victim. And this is something that I think is more prevalent now than perhaps uh, any other time, is that this is promoted. Now, as I said, with Satan's lies, they're often mixed with an element of truth. Is the, are there real victims in the world? Absolutely. We cannot deny that. There is true victims, and there are real abusers, and there are oppressors in this world. That does happen. We can't deny that to be true. It, it's happening now, and it's happened ever since creation, that there are those who oppress and abuse. In Zechariah, the Lord speaks out against oppression. Zechariah 7, 9-10, Thus the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. God says justice and kindness and compassion must be, must be accomplished and not oppression. And he spoke out against that, that uh, the Israelites were not to do that. But it's not just under the Mosaic Law. It's not just in Old Testament times. We're reminded in James that there was oppression going on in the New Testament, in the church age as well. James 2.6 says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Certainly there was the issue there in the church age as well. In the early church, there was oppression going on. And Scripture is very clear about this. We are not to oppress, whether that be oppress the poor, uh, oppress for another race, for any reason, to fail to do justice, to fail to show kindness and compassion. That is 
absolutely sinful for us to do that. And the reality is, living in a fallen world, we're going to experience that to some extent. We all will to some extent, some definitely more than others. We see suffering and oppression today where there's children who suffer at the hands of their parents all the time when parents that should be caring and nurturing them, maybe harsh and even abusing them. Many in positions of authority use oppression to harm others to get what they want. So this has definitely happened. And certainly, I want to make clear up front, as we look at the cult of victimhood, it's not to deny that there's real victims. There are certainly real victims, but and if you are a victim and need to get out of a situation of abuse, certainly talk to an elder, talk to a pastor about that. And certainly we want to be helpful, and you need to get out of a, a situation that is potentially very harmful. But that being said, there's, a, there's an, a mentality that we must avoid, and that's the victim mentality. And that's very different from being a victim. And that's what I want to talk about today is a victim mentality. You can have a victim mentality even if you're not a victim. And in fact, that's a very common issue, and that's mostly what I'm addressing, is so many of us who have a victim mentality, even though we're not a victim at all, and we see that in the world, but you can also be a true victim and not have a victim mentality. You can't have one without the other. Just because you're a victim, you don't have to think in the way of always seeing yourself as a victim. And so we'll be looking at the victim mentality. You see, the, the feeling of victimhood doesn't necessarily mean you're a victim. Uh, in our world today, we live in a postmodern, uh, psychologized age where there is your truth and my truth, uh, people talk about. And there is also people saying, well, I, I feel like I'm a victim, therefore I must be a victim. My, my feelings mean that I am a victim. And feelings today are elevated to truth. It's my personal truth, because I, I feel that way. And that's why you hear such statements today as, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. It's because someone says, well, I... I feel like a woman, so I must be a woman. And I'm not saying that's true about myself, just to be clear. <laughs> but you may hear that, that I feel a certain way, therefore that, that is what's true, and one's feelings are deemed indisputable. And trump any scientific, biological truth to the contrary because of our psychologized age. And we see this in the victim mentality, that the elevation of feelings is to the point is if I feel victimized, then I must be a victim. But in dealing with that psychologized age and just the, the elevation of our feelings, it's important how important it seems to be in our society. We are good to remember what Scripture says about our feelings and whether we should trust them or not. Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10 Reminds us, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And in this verse, the word heart, as it's used here, 
It includes the thoughts, the motives, emotions. It's, it's everything inside of us. It's the uh, command center of our life. And Scripture tells us the heart, all that we are, is deceitful and desperately sick. And in fact, we see in verse 10 here, he links it with the mind. I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. And here is a type of Hebrew parallelism here where he is comparing or equating really the words heart and mind. And mind literally is the word kidneys. Of course, it's not translated as kidneys because we would read that in English and think, what does it mean? I test the kidneys. That would seem very strange. But what in Hebrew thinking, the kidneys is the seat of emotion. That is where our emotions lies in the kidneys. And so the Lord's saying, I search the heart, I test the mind. He's saying, I, I look at what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what your desires are, and all that. And I understand it, and you do not. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful. You cannot even understand, and you can't trust your own feelings. You need to trust the Word of God. Trust what God says. So, we see in here the, the idea then that if our feelings are not to be ultimately trusted, the feeling of victimhood is not something that we can claim just because we might feel that way. And the issue then is not even whether you're a victim or not, but do you have a victim mentality? It's a matter of mindset. It's a matter of your thinking. And again, you can even be a victim in many ways. And in fact, uh, you probably are or will be in some way, but are you thinking with a victim mindset in what you're doing? Well, let me get into a little bit more. Is what is a victim mentality then? If I'm warning against don't have a victim mentality, what are we talking about when we say a victim mentality or a victim mindset? Well, a victim mindset usually includes some of the following type of thinking. One, the bad things in your life are not your fault, but because of what other people have done to you. Now, the blame, you may think, is on the system. It's, it's the world. It's the system that is rigged against me. It's not my fault for anything that has happened to me or anything in my life. It's what others have done. Maybe it's blaming another person, and I'm the victim of what they did, and therefore I'm not responsible for what I have done. A victim mentality also includes the thought that situations are seen in the negative, beyond your control, and you deserve better. There's a focus in the victim mentality on the negative things in your life and on the difficulties, on the challenges, and how, woe is me, what is happening to me, I deserve better than this. Third, a victim mentality sees the world as what's happening to you. All the events of life are thought of in a way that this is all orchestrated against me. This is what's happening to me. It's a very inward-focused thinking. So when we speak of victim mentality, it's this type of thinking that I'm wanting to warn against. This is the worldly thinking, the philosophy, and empty deception that the world is promoting. To always blame others, to always feel you deserve better, to have an attitude where woe is me on what is happening. And we would think, okay, well, this sounds horrible. Who wants to walk around with 
with a woe is me attitude. Who, who would ever want to see the world as in negative terms all the time and beyond their control? That doesn't sound very appealing at all. So probably no one has a victim mentality. Well, it's attractive in a lot of other ways. Why, why is the victim mentality so attractive? Well, first, if you're a victim, then you're not responsible. It's a victim card, get out of responsibility free. If you play the victim, then, hey, if there's something wrong in your marriage, it's not your fault. It's your spouse's fault. If there's something wrong with your kids, well, it wasn't your parenting. It's, it's definitely your kids. If something's wrong in your work, well, it's because they're keeping you down. And you can feel better about yourself because, hey, you're not the one to blame. So a victim mentality is attractive in that way. You, you aren't responsible. Secondly, victims receive empathy for their difficulty. And that's a natural thing for us, is to have empathy for those who are suffering. We want to come alongside those who have suffered. And again, are there, is there real suffering, and should we help those who are suffering? Yes. So there's an element of truth, and that's why this is so deceptive. But when you play the victim, when you indulge in victim mentality you may often be doing it just to get empathy from others. See how bad I have it? You know, come, come to me. Come encourage me. Tell me I'm not so bad. And even in our society, you get a higher social status or political status. Well, we must listen to the victim. Uh, you know, they're the ones that have authority because they're the victim. So you get, you get a type of empathy when you play the victim. Third, victims have a right to complain, or a perceived right. But see, it's not complaining, it's just telling my truth. But there's an idea that, look, so much has gone against me that I have a right to air all my grievances, to share all those things that have happened to me. So that makes the victim mentality attractive, that now I can complain and and feel justified for doing so. And fourth, victimhood can come with a sense of belonging. There's an old Bedouin proverb that says, I against my brother, I and my brother against my cousin, I my brother and my cousin against the world. And the idea there is, when you have a common foe, you can bond together with others. If there's someone else out there that is horrible or evil, and and you guys are in the same boat, well, that's, it brings community in a sense. And so, there is a desire to say, you know what, I, I want to join the victimhood class because then I join with other victims as well. And we go through this together. And so that can be appealing to many as well. So you can see with these different reasons, being a victim relieves you of blame for your condition. It brings empathy from others. It gives you the right to express complaint and it even helps you bond with others claiming the same victim status. So it can be an appealing thing. Now, where do we see this in the world? Well, we see it in critical race theory, for sure. And some of you have seen that, and and I'm sure know more about critical race theory than myself. But one thing that critical race theory does, it labels you either an oppressor or a victim. It takes this victim mentality that we've been talking about, and now applies it to huge groups of people, to different races of people, and 
pushing them, all of them, to say, have this victim mentality. And this is not something that helps people, ultimately, to have this victim mentality, but, but harms them. Now, to be clear, you know, racism is sinful. God hates it. That's absolutely true. But to, to dwell, to, to stay thinking on this victim mentality is not going to be helpful. And to divide people into these two classes of oppressor or victim does not lead towards unity. It leads towards more division. And so this is an area where we see the victim mentality being promoted in such a widespread way. But of course, that's not the other play, only place that we see it. We see victim mentality in all sorts of areas. A book was re- recently written called The Rise of the Victimhood Culture, which points out that there's victimhood being claimed in almost every class of people. And a quote from that book, he writes, this is by Campbell and Manning, he writes this, Victimhood culture makes it hard to avoid wrongdoing. If you have any kind of privilege, the social world is full of peril. You always risk giving offense. Engage in small talk and you might be guilty of a microaggression. Cook a new dish or adopt a new hairstyle and you might be guilty of cultural appropriation. Teach about something unpleasant and you might be guilty of triggering someone. Express your religious or political beliefs and you might be guilty of violence. Whatever you do, you must do it in a way that is supportive of victims and reproachful of their oppressors. And he looks at this is common everywhere. People have to walk on eggshells many times. Someone is going to be oppressed by something I say unintentionally. And those who who support this victimhood culture would say, well, it doesn't matter what you intended to say. It's how I felt by what you said. And therefore, it gets to be where, boy, I don't know what I can say and what I can't say. And it doesn't matter what I'm thinking, what I say. Someone might take this as an offense. And so we see this victimhood culture everywhere. And so we must be so careful about adopting the same mentality ourselves. And that's what I really want to talk about today. Is not, look at how bad CRT is for the victimization culture. Look how bad the world is in other areas claiming victimhood. But what I want to share with you today and warn you about and exhort you about is, are you taking on this mindset? Are you playing the victim? Do you fall into this type of thinking yourself? Because really, as believers, we need to be careful how we think and how we live and certainly we share the gospel, want to see the world change through coming to Christ. But we're not uh, cultural warriors out to change the culture by pointing out this foolishness of victimhood. We are here to live like Christ and share the gospel that they might think rightly as well. So I want to focus on your thinking today. Are you playing the victim? Do you have this type of thinking in your own life? Well, what would this look like? Perhaps the state, these kinds of statements. The credit card company is the reason I'm in debt. They made it too easy to spend money that I didn't have. <laughs> a, a preposterous type of thinking, but it has happened. Or my parents are responsible that I'm overweight. 
They let me have ice cream whenever I wanted. And all kinds of times, in all sorts of ways, people blame their parents for the way they are. Well, I'm overweight because of my parents. I don't have a good job because of my parents. Everything is my parents' fault. That's, that's the victimhood mentality. Or sure, I don't work that hard, but my boss is unreasonable, and it doesn't seem to matter how hard I work anyway. It's my boss's fault that I don't do great in my job or work very hard. It's not, it's not my fault. I'm the victim here. Or my husband is the one to blame for my depression. He's so hard to live with, it just brings me down. Of course, that could be flipped around to say, it's my wife is the fault with our marriage. I'm the one who's doing right. It's her fault. But often we might play the victim ourselves and make excuses for sin. Because look, if it's my parents' fault, if it's my wife's fault, then, then I'm not the one to blame. And all of us can fall into this wrong thinking all the time. So we must be careful about this thinking, and I'm warning against it, but what I certainly want to do today is compare that with truth from Scripture. And so I want to look with you today at truth from Scripture and how we should think about the victim mentality, and then what should our response be? How should we then live? So first, let's look at the truth. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis Start in Genesis chapter 2. And I don't have to tell you, because we all know Genesis, very first book of our Bibles, the very beginning of all things. And we know creation of the world then in chapter 1, and then also in chapter 2, And then we see in chapter 2, and starting in verse 16, we see command given by the Lord. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Very clear command given by the Lord that they are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only tree. Pretty clear what they were supposed to do. Well, let's start in chapter 3, verse 1. Well, what happens? It says in chapter 3, 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And here we see mankind's fall into sin. Here we see the rejection of God's clear command and rebellion against what God had instructed them to do. God had been very clear in his command, and they had gone 
against it. And much could be said about this passage, but it's the next one that I want to focus on, and that's verses 7 to 10. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Having disobeyed God's clear command, Adam and Eve experienced shame for the first time. Shame for what they had done. Shame for breaking their relationship with the Lord and doing what He told them not to do. And so they hid themselves. God pursued them even though they were hiding from Him. And God said, continuing on, verses 11 to 13, And He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Not to be outdone. The Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And here we have the very first sin. And what do Adam and Eve do? They play the victim. From the very beginning, we see this. Well, Lord, it's this woman. She's, she's the one to blame. And the woman, the serpent, he's the one to blame. And really, not only do they blame, Adam blame his wife, Eve blame the serpent, but what does Adam say? The woman you gave to be with me. Who is Adam really blaming here? Oh God, it's really your fault. You gave me this woman. Adam plays the victim. Eve plays the victim here. They both wanted to blame someone else because they knew if someone else to blame, then I'm not to blame. But was that justified for them to blame the other? Is God the fault that Adam and Eve sinned? Was his creation of woman, was his allowing the serpent to be in the garden, was it God's fault? Absolutely not. But there was the desire to play the victim card here. To say, look, it's not my fault. It is the wife's fault. It is the serpent's fault. That, that is the reason that I sinned. Now we may look at Adam and Eve and look at this account and think, well, how could they have done something so foolish as to blame God for their sin? How could Adam have blamed his wife? That's, that's ridiculous that he would do such a thing. Well, have we, have you ever thought or said things like this? I may have yelled at my wife, but you should have heard what she said first. That's victim mentality. Yes, I was angry with my husband, but he is such a jerk. Look, it's his fault. It's my parents' fault that my life turned out this way. Perhaps I'm critical of others, but that's just my personality. You're playing the victim here by saying what? God made me like this. I'm critical, but it's God's fault. Or, I know I'm complaining, but you don't know how bad it's been for me. Again, blaming God for your life. And our sinful nature 
It's always so quick to go right there. To do just what Adam and Eve did. We so much want to pass the blame, to not take responsibility for our own sin. And many times you can legitimately point to someone else's sin that preceded what you did. That's often the case. You know what? Maybe your husband is a jerk. You know, my wife could say, yes, sometimes my husband is a jerk. It doesn't mean that you can act sinfully. Sometimes your wife doesn't respond well. Does that mean I get a free pass to sin? No. We can never legitimately, never biblically use the victim card. We can never say, look, I am not to blame for my sin. We all have a responsibility for our own actions, for our own statements, for our own thoughts. You cannot blame someone else for what you've done. And it, again, it goes back as far back as Adam and Eve. We see this. We cannot say, you don't understand, I am the victim. We must remember truth like from Romans 14.12, where we're reminded each one of us will give an account to himself, of himself to God. Each one of us will stand before God, not for what precipitated our sin, but for what we did. What have you done? Have you honored God? And when you stand before God one day to give an account, I wouldn't blame someone else for what you've done, and I certainly wouldn't blame God for what you did. You better own your sin and, and just rest on what Christ has done on your behalf to forgive you of the sin. He is the only one who lived the perfect life. And we need to trust in Him and think as Christ did. Secondly, not only the victim mentality is not new, but I want to remind you from Scripture, why the victim mentality is so harmful. Why is it so bad to have this mentality? And the main reason it's so bad, and I'll give you two reasons. One is the victim mentality strikes against the gospel. It is antithetical to the Scripture's teaching on sin. You see, when a person sees himself as the victim, then he is not to blame Someone else is to blame. And if someone else is to blame, then there's no repentance needed. So it works against the gospel in that it works against the need for a Savior in your own life. If an unbeliever thinks that none of the things that have happened to him are his fault, then, well, what what repentance is needed? Why do I need to ask forgiveness of sin if it's not my fault? When we preach... Christ is Savior, we need to make sure that someone has an accurate understanding of sin or else they'll see no need to come to the Lord for forgiveness. And if people are working with this victim mentality, then it's have, they have a hard time seeing how they need to come to Christ. Our pastor uh, stated this in an elder meeting not long ago about this issue and said, when you Turn the sinner into a victim, you cut him off from the gospel. And that is exactly what can happen. And that's one reason why the critical race theory is so damaging, is it promotes the idea that others are to blame and minimizes personal responsibility and doesn't drive people to a savior for their sin. It, it places blame on others. It looks to the oppressors for forgiveness 
that they need to repent and, and not self to look to Christ. But it's not just unbelievers that can be harmed by the victim mentality. The victim mentality works against our own sanctification as believers. Believers need to continue in the sanctification process. And sanctification is where after you have been justified, after you are saved, you're becoming more and more Christ-like in, whatever, in everything that you do. We're reminded in Romans 6, 5-7 that we are dead to sin. Okay, Romans 6, 5-7 says this, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. As a believer, when you are saved, you come to Christ, you commit your life to him, you're no longer under the power of sin. You don't have to sin anymore. Sin has no control over you. Well, what that means then, it doesn't mean sin is absent from your life, though, because you must fight that. Even though it doesn't have control over your life, it still can influence you. And so later in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, we're given this command. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you would obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Since we don't have to sin anymore, we should strive not to sin anymore. It must be a constant battle in our lives against our own selfish desires. And much of the New Testament is filled with imperatives, with different commands reminding us not to sin. A good list is in Colossians 3, 5-8, which talks about different sins that we are to put to death in our life. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. We are to put to death these sins in our life. That's the process of sanctification. We're not under the power of sin, but we're very much in the presence of sin. It's around us, and we must fight to reduce the amount of sin in our life. Now, when you put on the thinking of the victim mentality, and the blame goes to others for your life, you are not focused on mortifying sin, but on how other people are doing bad things to you. And that works against our sanctification. We need always to look at how am I responsible? And sometimes for the situation in your life, maybe another person that puts you in that situation is 90% of the reason. Maybe they bear 90% of the responsibility and you only are 10% of a certain situation going south. Own that 10%. Don't focus on that 90 and what others have done to you. You may be a victim, but if your focus is on how you're a victim instead of that 10% responsibility that you've borne, then you're not going to be mortifying sin. You're going to be focused on what others have done to you. So we must always be working towards seeing our sin, confessing, repenting of it, not 
seeing ourselves as the victim of others. So it contradicts, the victim mentality contradicts justification, the teaching of the gospel. It contradicts our own sanctification in how we live. Well, how then are we to respond? If these things are true, how then are we to respond uh, to these truths? Well, first thing I want you to do is evaluate yourself. Do you fall into this deception yourself? Have you seen a pattern in your life of this type of thinking? Do you make excuses for sin in your life? Are there areas where you say, well, it's not really my fault that I did that thing. It's, it's my wife, it's my husband, it's someone else's fault. Do you ever excuse your behavior toward your spouse because he or she has done something unkind to you? Do you often view others as falling into one of two camps, either being sympathetic with you or someone who is making life difficult for you? Do you see the world as fellow victims and oppressors, or are you saying, look, God's in control, I'm trusting what he has? Or do you occasionally allow yourself a measure of self-pity or complaining in your heart about what God has done in your life? Do you find yourself just, woe is me, feeling sorry for yourself about your condition? It's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to do because you know what? Life is hard. And there are difficult things in this world. You will face some type of suffering. If you're not in a trial right now, well, one's going to come. What is your focus? Do you trust the Lord in that? Or do you wallow in self-pity? So if you can say yes to these questions, any of these questions, this is what we need to do. Number one, take responsibility for your actions. No matter what another person does to you, you are responsible for your response. Now, the other person will also be responsible before God. Make sure you remember that as well. They will answer to God for what they've done. And so, you know, you know if you oppress anyone, if you cause harm to anyone, you will be responsible before God for that. So you are not to be part of anything that is hurting or harming others, but for the, the part where you are responsible for, something goes wrong and maybe you're just part responsible, you own that. Take responsibility. Learn and grow from that. 2 Corinthians 5.10 reminds us, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. Each person is accountable before the Lord for what he has done. Even in the most difficult situations, if you're a believer, you can speak and act in a way that pleases the Lord. And the reason is because you have the Holy Spirit within you. No matter what someone does to you, you can respond in a godly way. That doesn't mean you can be free from suffering in this world, but it does mean that you can respond in a way that pleases God. And when you see your thinking going down the path of, but he did this, but she did that to me, and but I'm the one who's mistreated the most, just stop and say, Lord, what are you wanting me to learn through this? And how do I respond rightly in this situation? 
So first thing in a response, take responsibility for your actions. Secondly, accept that you're living in a fallen world. Ever since sin entered the world, we live in a world full of difficulty and suffering and injustice. It's a reality of life. We must not participate in it. We must help those who are suffering. But we must not think that we're going to ever live in a world that is free from this until Christ returns. This world is not fair. That's a reality. And you will face unfair things in your life. But do you trust God in that, that he's still in control? Has God left the throne when something difficult happens to you? He certainly is not. And one day, perfect justice will be done. God will bring about justice. And that's what Romans 12, 19 reminds us. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. And that passage talks about how we can't do good to others who harm us because God's going to have ultimate justice. He's the one that's going to make things right. So we need to accept the reality that, yes, it's a fallen world, but we can trust that God is going to make things right one day. Third, be passionate about the gospel. And I want you actually to turn to this passage, Philippians 1. I greatly appreciate this passage, and I believe it's just such a helpful model for us in what the Apostle Paul did when he faced difficulties in his life. So, the letter to the Philippian church, Paul was in house arrest in Rome as he wrote this, and he's writing to this church, a church that he loved. And he writes this. They were concerned about him. So he writes, verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. As I mentioned, Paul in a Roman prison writes this. And he says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Well, what are his circumstances? Well, he was improperly arrested in Jerusalem. Lies were, were being said that he brought someone into the temple that he shouldn't have. He was arrested. People wanted to kill him. He suffered. He went through a shipwreck just recently as well before he made his way to Rome. His circumstances were pretty dire. What were others doing at this time when he was in jail? They were preaching to cause Paul distress. Here are other preachers of the gospel, supposed to be on his team, who were hoping he would feel horrible by preaching while he was in jail. If anyone had 
the opportunity to take the victim mentality, well, Paul, Paul would have had good reason to. He was the victim. He was the victim of false charges. He was the victim of these people who were trying to cause him distress. He was a victim. But did he have the victim mentality? No. Now, is he wallowing in self-pity here? No. What is he saying? The gospel is going forth. That's all I care about. That's what's important. He sees his circumstances. He sees even his critics as an opportunity for the gospel to go forth. And he says what? I rejoice. He has joy in this situation. That's how to respond. Be passionate about the gospel. When all you care about is to see Christ proclaimed, to be passionate about the gospel, then uh, all these things that happen to you aren't that important anymore. As long as the gospel's going out. You want to get out of this victim mentality? Think of who, who needs the gospel? Who can I be sharing the gospel with today? Which of my coworkers needs Christ? Which of my family members needs Christ? If your thoughts are on the gospel and therefore not on yourself, you're going to lose that victim mentality. Paul is a great example of refusing to have that victim mentality because his focus was always on the gospel and seeing Christ preached wherever he went. So that is a certain cure to the victim mentality. Next, and very much in line with that, is focus on the needs of others. When you're, again, focused on others, you're not focused on yourself and what things have happened to you. What are the needs of those around you? Is there anyone in your Bible study that might have a financial need or, or other type of need? On a Sunday morning, is there someone you could talk to and encourage? Someone who's hurting? Is there maybe a new person that doesn't know anyone and would appreciate some encouragement? Take your eyes off yourself, not what has happened to me, woe is me, but how can I show love to others? Uh, not long ago, uh, someone told me that they were leaving Grace Community Church, and this person said, no one really cared about me, no one really talked to me, and they left. And that, it saddened me for a couple reasons. One reason was, boy, did no one ever really talk to him, did no one get to know him? But secondly, was he just focused on himself the whole time as well? I mean, he was someone I knew and so someone I was um, involved in his life and be able to remind him, look, yeah, that may have happened, but are you so focused on loving others, you forget whether someone has come to talk to you? And so we need to have that attitude. Are we reaching out to others all the time? Or is it, no one talked to me today. How come no one talked to me? How are you reaching out to others? Refuse to have that victim mentality in your daily life. Focus on loving others. And then finally, our response should be considering the example of Christ. I said Paul was maybe the best example of being a victim, for sure, and not having a victim mentality, but he pales in comparison to Christ, doesn't he? If anyone who had a valid claim to being a victim, it was Christ. He was born in a stable, and even as an adult, had no place to lay his head. He suffered at the hands of those he created. He was mocked by many. Religious leaders hated him. Even his own family members thought he was crazy. His whole trial was a sham and a miscarriage of justice. 
and he was crucified on a cross even though he had not committed one sin. Was Christ a victim? Absolutely. He did not deserve any of the things that happened to him. Did he have that type of mentality? Do we see him feeling sorry for himself? Seeking other people's empathy? You see how bad it is for me? Responding with complaint or depression? No. What do we see Christ doing? Rather than having a victim mindset, he maintained the attitude of a humble servant. Philippians 2 reminds us of this. He humbled himself willingly to be a servant. He focused on the gospel even when he was weary. The woman at the well, here he was hungry, but here was an opportunity to share the gospel. His focus was on others and how he might share the gospel. He joyfully endured suffering, recognizing he was under God's control. He never responded in sin when reviled, he did not revile in return. He prayed that God would forgive the sins of others. He prayed for those who oppressed him. And of course, he sacrificially loved others, even to the point of death. That's how we're to respond. We're to follow the example of Christ. You may be a victim at times, but don't have the victim mentality. You may not be a victim at all and still be tempted to have that victim attitude of it's someone else's fault. But be like Christ. Be like Christ who did not focus on self, but wanted to see the truth, the gospel be proclaimed, loved others in, to the greatest, to the point of his own death. So as we see the victimhood, cult of victimhood around us, make sure you see it for what it is. See it as antithetical to biblical truth. And guard your own heart and say, no, I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to live like Christ. I'm going to take the eyes off myself, love others, see that the gospel gets spread, take responsibility for my own actions before the Lord, put those sins to death, and put on righteousness in all that I do. All right, let me close in prayer for us. Lord, as we consider the world around us and the lies of victimhood and wanting to put the blame on anyone but ourselves, Lord, may we not respond in that way ourselves. May we instead ask, how do I need to repent? Lord, and how can I honor you in my response no matter what happens in my life? Father, just pray that... um, You'd make us more like Christ in all that we do. Pray that we would be faithful in loving others and being a light for you wherever we go. Lord, may you be honored in the name of Christ. Amen.